This is me taking a stand. The video opens with a camera shot moving slowly, peering left a bit, then right, low to the ground. The scene, a somewhat barren patch of woods, could be any patch of woods. A stand for the sisters who have been stolen. It slowly approaches from a distance an unusual sight, an elegant red dress, and begins to carefully pan toward it, upward to the dress on a blue hanger attached to a dangling branch. Indigenous women face murder rates 10 times the national average. Four out of five are affected by violence today. The young woman's voice you hear is Zion Richardson's. She's Native American, a member of the Hallowa Saponi tribal community in Hollister, North Carolina. The video, which Zion produced in April of 2019, was a senior project. When I asked her if we could use it on this podcast, she wrote simply, that would be amazing. Thank you for wanting my words to help. It is the fifth leading cause of death for Native women. Zion now appears in the video, walking through the woods with her back to the camera. Her dark hair rests with braids on her shoulders. She wears a long red skirt and a black top. The camera comes back around to her face for the first time, a face with more meaning, more strength and principle than her age would suggest. As Zion walks, she's got a lot on her mind, a lot in her voice. It is an epidemic. We have been forced to assimilate while people still appropriate our culture, even today. We had to adapt to stolen land, but we will not adapt to the stealing of our women and girls. Zion walks past a tree trunk and touches her hand to a splash of red on its bark. A special case that struck home for me was a girl I knew, Faith Danielle Hedgebiff. She was a ray of sunshine that warmed everyone who had the privilege of knowing her. She was smart, funny, friendly, and beautiful. Every time I saw her, she would speak and hug me with a smile on her face. In 2012, Faith was found in her off-campus apartment. She had been stolen. This is Pursuit, the podcast, episode eight, a journey seeking answers and avenues leading to justice for Faith Hedgepeth. I'm Tom Gasparoli. I see so much of myself in the example she set and the path she took. We come from the same tribe, the same street. It has been a little over six years and we are still hurting that this vibrant young woman is no longer here. In the video, the camera now pans from Zion's feet slowly up to her face. In her right hand, a white scarf with colored flowers. Then you see a simple, powerful makeshift cross leaning on a rock, wrapped in a beige cloth, tied with white thread. I can let the world know that we will not back down. We will not be eradicated. Our women are the givers of life. We will fight for our stolen sisters and the sisters who want a better tomorrow for indigenous people everywhere. This is my way of doing just that. I am going to Carolina in the fall to do what I need to do so that I may return and help my community. I want to dedicate that to Faith. I feel like I am carrying on her legacy. Faith's legacy, 
I can feel it every time I write the words in this podcast, every time I interview someone who knew her, every time I see Faith's face and then remember all the people trying to keep the flame of hope for a resolution to the case burning. Sometimes that hope flickers, but it has not gone out. Those who want to give Faith Hedgepeth her voice in all of this. What's etched on her bold, beautiful grave marker in Hollister, North Carolina, just have faith. On the tombstone from Hebrews 11.1, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yes, there is a legacy and a profound longing for the full story to be told, for there to be a chapter of closure and calm. Faith's mother, Connie, wants to believe things are always in God's hands, but of course she thinks, not this. This couldn't be, could it? I did ask a preacher that came to see me after she died. I asked her, I said, well, you think if she was here with me that the Lord would have been on Tucker anyway? Was it really her time? I said, because I know it's not God's will for somebody to brutally kill someone. That's just the devil in that person, <laughs> evil in that person. Connie Hedgepeth wants her daughter's killer or killers found. There has to be an end to what happened, an answer as to why, so there can be a new beginning, a quiet, peaceful stream of memories and moments of Faith's life, not her violent death, not that. Connie wants, without burden, to have Faith back in a serene, special way, unsullied, her daughter's voice in her ear, her laugh gathering in her heart, to hold her tight, consoling her, with no more questions or tears or fears, worrying if the murderer could murder again or has, worrying that Faith's spirit cannot rest until this case is put to rest. She still wasn't finished. There was so much more that she could have done and would have done if someone hadn't taken her life. I can let the world know that we will not back down. We will not be eradicated. Our women are the givers of life. Let's take a turn now. In the context of Zion Richardson's words in her remarkable video and the ongoing seven-year investigation into Faith Hedgepeth's death, I want to be clear about one aspect of my sense of the case. There is no evidence whatsoever that I've seen that the lead investigating agency, the Chapel Hill Police Department, has put any less emphasis on or effort into Faith's case because she is Native American. The probe, again, does not seem to have been slowed or hampered in any way because of that. But what can't be overstated, the quiet, often nearly ignored cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls over decades and decades especially those who lived on remote reservations across the U.S. and in Canada. The lack of attention that Zianne Richardson talks about in her video is real and deeply disturbing. 
and Faith is one of those stolen sisters. But the truth of her murder, despite an abundance of evidence, is still hidden, unknown. One piece of evidence that emerged in public view a few years after the murder that could have come from the police but didn't is this, as mysterious as anything in the case. It might mean nothing. It might mean everything. A provocative and at first blush almost impossible to discern voicemail from an apparent pocket dial made by Faith's phone to a friend. It sounds like gibberish, but those are voices you hear, hard as they are to hear, and they may very well be related to what happened to Faith Edgepeth. Let me take you back now to that night the night Faith Hedgepeth died. Around 1.15 on the morning of September 7th in a nightclub called The Thrill. College kids and young adults on a Thursday night with no fear, just thrills really, most of them. The thrill of being young, powerful, nothing can hurt me, I've got my whole life ahead of me feeling kind of thrill. The thrill of adrenaline coursing through you on the dance floor, blowing off steam, advertising your rhythm, moves, and mood. The thrill of being high on something, alcohol surely for many, inhibitions down, invitations up. The thrill of flirtation, seduction, of going after what you want and can have, and what you can't have, perhaps what you shouldn't want. The club is a place full of friends and strangers. Sometimes your friend can be a stranger. That night, September 6th, 2012, into the 7th, the thrill of playing by nobody's rules but your own, of freedom sought and freedom found. The thrill of letting loose, losing control in some cases, being young, invincible. Yes, around 1.15 that Thursday night, on Rosemary Street in Chapel Hill, a block from the UNC Chapel Hill campus, all those feelings were unleashed. It was noisy, sweaty, frantic fun for most. But looks can be deceiving amid the thrills or jealousies, envy, attitude, anger, people who are in fact mad or miserable, mean or malicious, people on the outside who look to be game for the party, people on the inside who are tortured by something, sick and tired of something, or searching for trouble. The thrill, like any nightclub, could be a hunting ground. This is where Faith and her roommate Karina Rosario were hours before Faith died. The pulsating sounds and energies of life at every turn, always a few feet or inches away. And that night, while the place was pounding with sound, somewhere in the bowels of the building, police say a phone call went out. It rang on the other end a few miles away. I believe it was just before 1.30. Authorities say there was a timestamp. The call was received and registered on the other end. The call was from Faith's phone. An unintended call, it seems. A pocket dial. We've all had them. But not many say like this one. 
That sounds like someone identified as Faith saying why. Let's hear it again. The voicemail is 179 seconds long, with words that some people believe are full of intensity, of fury, of abuse, verbal and otherwise. Faith's voice is on the recording, her family says, and several others agree. Bitterly cold words in some places. Is that what can be heard or not? In a minute, we'll get to a transcript that may or may not be the words that sound so scrambled here. can't make much of any sense of it at first, maybe at all, but you do hear, I think, fast talking, harsh talking, a woman under some kind of assault by several others. Listen to this. Ow, it sounds like someone is saying. The sounds can make your head spin. The enhanced version of the voicemail left after the pocket dial done by an audio expert for a TV show and for the Hedgepeth family, is what you're listening to. There, does someone say, help me? There's a link to the entire voicemail with a video transcript prepared by the expert named Arlo West at PursuitPodcast.com. I encourage you to check it out. When you see his transcript superimposed over the audio, honestly, at many points, the transcript seems much more viable. The man who enhanced the audio, Arlo West, said there could be a timestamp error, that the pocket dial-in voices may not have come from the club at all, but rather, it was from a few hours later, after Faith and her roommate, Karina Rosario, left the club. Here's West. My first reaction was that this most likely was made either minutes before she was murdered or during the time that she was being murdered because there's a lot of things going on in this uh, recording which, you know, are indicative of somebody in pain. Chapel Hill Assistant Police Chief Salisa LaHue has said in the past on the TV show Crime Watch Daily that the call can't have been made right around the time Faith was murdered. We do have uh, physical evidence that um, about the time frame around that call, and we do know that uh, Faith was okay after that call, so the call was not made at the time of her death. The friend of Faith's who got the voice message on her phone and gave it to police is, like some of Faith's family, sure it's her friend's voice she hears. She said on ABC's 2020, I do hear her voice and it does sound like she's yelling, maybe upset. Faith's father, Roland Hedgepeth, said on Crime Watch Daily, When she says, ow, I know it's Faith. And I have no, no doubt whatsoever. Arlo West acknowledges the timestamp reported by police and other evidence they say proves the call came from the club, and he knows it's a problem. But he also says, I would say that 2012 technology, as far as timestamps, message sending, uh, cell phone tower triangulation, that sort of thing, it just wasn't reliable. 
West says if it's not Faith's murder, it's still a dramatic dispute that could have precipitated the murder a few hours later. There's an argument here. It's it's there. It's it's audible. It's there. And this poor girl ends up, you know, uh, being killed the same night that this was re- this recording was made. I think it's pretty evidential. I think it's significant. Um, I don't think it's easily dismissed. Let me read a few parts of the transcript now, starting at the very beginning. First, the initial seven seconds again. Fair warning, some of the language in the transcript is coarse, violent, very troubling. In my reading, I substitute the letter F for an obscenity we all know. From the very beginning, female, you want to mess with my boyfriend? Faith, I said I don't want to, Rosie. Female, oh right, it's not his fault. Male, all of this bullshit you're going to answer to. Female, F you, I'm pissed. Male, did you F your own obsession? Faith, I didn't do it. Male, this is all effing her good, her description. Female, why? Male, you because it belongs to you, effing bullshit story, you personally. Female, I'm going to kick your face, bitch. I figured out that's bullshit. Then this, starting at 33 seconds. Those words, according to West. Female, don't ever think I would have believed you. Lies at you. Faith, ow. Female, ow, mocking. Female, your talk sure ain't funny. You know he's gonna you and F you. I will F you, bitch. Faith, inaudible scream. Faith, let me go. Male, inaudible, her. Faith, help me. Female, put up a fight. Male, let's put the effing to her. Arlo West again. This animosity and this... this this jealous female stuff that was going on. I thought those things, those were all huge red flags to me. It seemed like she was being uh, you know, targeted by these individuals um, with all kinds of you know, verbal attacks uh, and some physical, it sounded physical to me too. Get off me, Faith says in that snippet, according to West. Now to the audio from 2 minutes 52 seconds to 2.55. It sounds like a woman screaming no. Before we hear from West in great detail, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a middle-aged man who spent his life around sound. He is almost preternaturally calm no matter what you ask him or what he's talking about. Level-headed. West says he's worked on some big movies in audio, and 20 or so years ago when he was in Dallas, an area sound studio used to get calls from law enforcement, and sometimes they'd send clips to Arlo West to see what he could do with them. So that was, that's how I got, you know, cut my teeth learning uh, a little bit about forensic audio. Soon West made a decision. He wanted to get into forensic audio. First, he says he called Kenneth Marr, then a top FBI audio analyst who gave him some key advice. Do things that are going to make it 
more intelligible, make it sound better, um, but don't change anything. Don't remove anything. Don't redact anything, edit anything. You've got to be real careful about all that stuff. And, you know, get certified. If you're going to go testify against me in court, I'll tear you apart if you don't have certifications. So he went to a well-known audio expert named Tom Owen for certification. He was one of the um, the best in the world. I mean, he was, uh, uh, you know, he trained everybody. He's done some really high-profile cases. One of the best audio, forensic audio video guys um, in, in, in our lifetime, for sure. You said, I want to do this and I want to be educated and trained properly. Exactly. You know, you really have to have some sort of a, a grasp on, you know, uh, human speech and, and dialogue and, and the frequencies that, that that falls into. When in court on a case, Wes says. You know, you want to be able to, to tell these people what you did, how you did it, what the methodology is. It's been reported that other audio experts can't make much out of the recording. I think that includes experts consulted by the Chapel Hill Police. That doesn't mean Wes should be discounted. He was asked to do something, and he did it. His transcript I find to be remarkably consistent in tone and in content. As you can imagine, Wes takes his work seriously, in part because he sometimes deals in life and death cases like this one, in part because he is at times under oath. We're talking about my reputation here as a forensic expert. I'm not just going to throw something together. That I'm not going to make something up, first of all. That would be just like, I mean, what, what purpose would that serve? Uh, that would be the end of my career. I'd be just dumb. Um, and I don't do it. I never have and never will. I have to be able to hear it. I have to be 100% sure of what I'm hearing. One of the first murder cases West worked on and testified in was the murder of a man named David King, in Dover, New Hampshire in 2008. A murder-for-hire scheme involving a woman named Diana Saunders and two other men. This from WMUR-TV. Confessed to shooting King in the head and slitting his throat. And he interviewed King's girlfriend, Diana Saunders, who they said paid them to do it. During a prolonged investigation leading up to Diana Saunders' trial, law enforcement got hold of West and eventually asked him to testify. They were basically trying to get her ex-husband to work with them. They wanted, yeah, they wanted her on tape admitting, you know, that she had something to do with the homicide. And, and she had a lot more to do with it than just something. She had everything to do with it. The case is very interesting because they had taken a, a, a little handheld recorder and they put it in his uh, vehicle um, and made one of the most uh, crucial mistakes that anybody can make when you're trying to do a surveillance recording, which is put it underneath the seat of the, the driver's seat of the car. That's probably the worst place you can put a recorder or, or a microphone, for that matter, to pick up any conversation in a car. They had sent it off to the FBI, and they felt like they couldn't really do anything with it. I was kind of shocked that they were calling me, because so I'm thinking, well, if the FBI can't do anything, well, I'm not sure what I can do, but you know, I'm willing to try. So they came to me and, um, you know, I was actually able to enhance it and get a fairly decent transcript. I think we probably got about 80 or 90% uh, transcription um, and won a you know, homicide conviction based upon that. When he was asked by Crime Watch Daily a few years ago to analyze the mystery voicemail in the Faith Hedgepeth case, 
West says he told producers one thing at the outset. I made sure that the people that um, asked me to do this understood that if I find any evidence or anything of, of significant uh, evidential quality in this, my first reaction will be to call the police uh, and to call Chapel Hill and speak to them directly prior to anybody else. That was my number one thing. It's like, look, we're talking about a young girl who's, who's dead, was, was murdered. And when he finished his work, he did share it with Chapel Hill PD. They didn't come out and say that there was anything useful to them, um, but they didn't say that there wasn't anything useful either. They were very tight-lipped, which is understandable in a homicide uh, investigation. They kind of keep their cards close to their chest, and, and you can't blame them. Kind of felt like, you know, that it, the timestamp issue to them really kind of rules this out as being um, yeah, something that, that they would, you know, that was going to blow this case wide open, for instance, let's say. The police have told me they've identified the people involved in the conversation on the voicemail that they say happened in the Thrill nightclub, but that's pretty much all they'll say. West says, There was at least two male voices in this recording and at least two female voices, if not three, but at least two of each. Early on in his work, Arlo West went to Faith's father to talk about what he was hearing. The fact of the matter is I didn't know who Faith was. I'd never heard her voice ever. Um, so I actually talked to um, Roland Hedgepath a few times and kind of get his opinion, you know, is this your daughter? I mean, he, he was pretty adamant that it was her. And some of the things that I had found in the transcript, I kind of ran it by him. And, um, you know, he was, uh, yeah, this is my daughter. This is her saying these things. So it was kind of easy then at that point to kind of say, okay, we know that this is faith. Most courts will take the word of a, a relative uh, way over a forensic expert any day. I should point out something else about all of West's work on this case. He's done it for free and I've never made a dime off this. Um, it's all been to help the Hedgepeth family. And we're talking about a lot of time. Literally, I, I, I'm sure I listened to it more than a thousand times. I would say probably, you know, minimum of, yeah, I'd say minimum of 100 hours easily. Every time there was something really critical, I would go over and over and over and over, and sometimes I'd have to stop. I would be so, you know, just my... I would be so fatigued listening to it. I think she's dying. Do it anyhow, says the transcript. That audio again. More excerpts now from the transcript. Male, then you effer. Male, I'll effer. Faith, ow, my head. Female, do it. Male, I think she's dying. Male, do it anyhow. Male, get the duct tape next to. Then they can tie up Faith. Faith, please, me. My hands are on fire. Help. Male, put her hands behind her head. Faith, I can't believe that you really did it, Rosie. Female, really? Male, to our next victim. Female, all right. It's important to note that West does discern several names. Rosie, is that Karina Rosario? Rosie is on the transcript a couple times. Here, some of the final part of the transcript. Male, under her hips. Faith, F you. Male, back up. Faith, get off of me. Male, I don't know. Faith, ow. Female, sit up and... Faith, scream, help. 
male. Now I'll effer. Faith, no. The voicemail ends four seconds later at 2 minutes 59 seconds, 179 seconds. If this transcript is anything approaching correct, it's alarming. There's no question about it. Police are convinced the pocket dial was made from Faith's phone in the nightclub. Arlo West knows that's possible, but to his ear as someone, a musician, who spent countless hours around all the sounds in music clubs. There was no other evidence, no audible evidence. Any of these typical types of things that you would hear in this type of recording where it's made in a club, just didn't hear it. If it were in the nightclub, could it not have been in some back room somewhere? I did not hear anything in there that was indicative of that being recorded in a nightclub, period. There's just people kind of yelling or talking to each other loudly, um, arguing. One of the unidentified females seems to be directing her anger towards Faith. It just gets angrier and angrier. West also underscores this, whether the voicemail was left from the club or was not. And I don't think any of us can prove that it did or didn't. All we can do really is listen to the recording, know that there's an argument, know that there's some sort of contention there, know that somebody's being hurt. And, you know, you can come to your own conclusion as to what you believe is occurring. But I've never thought that the fact that this conversation may have occurred in the club didn't mean it wasn't related to her murder. This voicemail smack in the middle of a murder case, is it crucial evidence or not? So we may not know the answer to some of these these things that are in the transcript, but they're there, they're audible. Um, what do they mean? It doesn't seem in any way to me as if West was trying to create something somehow persuasive of one thing or another, that he was hearing things to fit some kind of preconceived scenario, that he just wanted some attention or notoriety for his work. I don't see a shred of that. transcript he did reads like a blur of intense dispute. Fiery is a good way to describe it. But was it fuel for a murder? And you said earlier that you have no qualms if you were ever called into court to talk about your transcript, to talk about your opinions? Absolutely. Under oath. If he can help bring any clarity to this case, Wes says, he'll be satisfied. And you knew all along, obviously, uh, the gravity of what you're doing. I and mean, if you think about it, you're you're an expert in audio, but you're talking about the death and murder of a, of a young woman. And that, that gets to you, doesn't it? It's not just about her murder and, and the, the fact that, she, that this young girl was, you know, taken away at such a young age and, and murdered. But you have people living today that are left here in the aftermath or family members. I mean, they're devastated. These people will never forget this. It was heartbreaking, man, you know, and, and I've got kids, you know, I got a, a young son who's in college. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, man, you know, this is, this is really something serious, beyond serious. This is, you know, get it right. And, you know, these people are counting on you. Do the best you can. And that's, that's all I can do is the best that I can do.
And I and I did. This is this is the real deal, and you want to get it right. You want to get it right for everybody, the family, for faith, but you also want to see some justice here. I feel like I am carrying on her legacy. I wrote this poem entitled No More Stolen Sisters. The power of an indigenous woman, a force to be reckoned with. Why must the strong be taken? No more stolen sisters. How many hearts must be broken? Homes and livelihoods shattered. Voids that can never be filled. No more stolen sisters. When will there be justice? We cry, we want answers, yet nothing can be shared. No more stolen sisters. Time goes by, people forget, the media forgets, but we will never. She is not just another statistic. No more stolen sisters. Red flashes everywhere as a reminder. Red is power, her red people, the red of the blood that was senselessly spilled. The red anger in our hearts motivating a movement. No more stolen sisters. She was and is a light. Her memory will forever shine. The day of reckoning will come for them. She will get the justice she deserves. They all will. No more stolen sisters. We carry them with us every day. Their laughs, smiles, hearts, legacies, the spirits of our missing and murdered indigenous women. They are worth more. We are keeping the faith. We have to keep the faith. This is for all of my stolen sisters. In Episode 9 of Pursuit on the murder of Faith Hedgepeth, an extended interview with a man who received the final text from Faith's phone just before 4 a.m. that terrible morning before she was so viciously attacked. I look back on it and I'm like, wow, like, you know, while people felt like I was controlling, it's it's kind of crazy. And honestly, from the controlling standpoint, is just wanting the best for her. A man once very close to Faith, who came under close scrutiny in this case. We can't rule out that he may still be. Pursuit is available on most major podcast sites. If you like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate your support. You can also find and listen to episodes on PursuitPodcast.com. If you have information or thoughts for me on the case, in writing or via an anonymous voice mailbox, go to the contact page on the website or reach out on social media. The number for Chapel Hill Police Crime Stoppers is also on PursuitPodcast.com. There is currently a potential $40,000 reward available in the Faith Hedgepath murder investigation.